might have been very tragic if we weren't more heavily involved in the future. Right. We've got the respect for each other's ability and integrity. What the, I can't think of any other requirements that business associates need. But, what's with it? We now think, Dick, we now think that it's time we sorted it out a bit more I will try early. To, I promise you I will try to sort it out as quickly as possible, come back and sit down with you and, and, and put it on the line. If, I'm a, if I am advised that I were to sit with my own thoughts and I'm not prepared to do anything, I'll still come back and sit down and honestly tell you, you see, because I mean, we, yes. we get advice. That's the most pessimistic view I can take, It's up right? to us whether we do it or not. So, Dick, that's it. You go away and you come back with something which, you know, won't start this argument again. The Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 5 A quick correction before we start. I'm likely to do this a fair amount as I learn more as we go through the audio. I stated in episode 4 that George's giving instructions to Glyn Johns about the Jackie Lomax album, Is This What You Want? This cannot be true. Glyn has just joined the project. It's most likely someone like Kevin Harrington. Another recommendation I'd like to make. The Ceylon podcast, which is currently doing forensic work on the Beach Boys Smile Project, is a constant source of inspiration for me. The level of research into the sessions, the musicians involved in the hundreds of interviews really puts us Beatles scholars to shame. I highly recommend it. As usual, if you want to follow the story from the start, please go back to episode one. Otherwise, here is a recap of episode four. With Paul's arrival, all Beatles are now present. Paul has to wait for a replacement bass to arrive due to a problem with the one that his road managers have set out for him. Director Michael Lindsay Hogg asks the guitarists to turn their amps down, which causes some consternation, and John and George air their complaints to Paul about the space that they're in. John and Paul joke about the presence of the Hare Krishna devotee that George has invited to the sessions. John, George and Ringo run through Don't Let Me Down for Paul and he claps along while waiting for his bass. When Paul's bass finally arrives, rather than carry on with Don't Let Me Down and complete it, John suggests to Paul that they learn I've Got a Feeling. 
John is quite enthusiastic about this song, even though he doesn't remember Paul's part. This song is the most recent collaboration between Lennon and McCartney, a rare thing these days, but it builds upon the approach that they'd taken previously, stitching together separate ideas into one portmanteau song. Much like songs like Baby You're a Rich Man and A Day in the Life, in addition, they have extended the use of counterpoint or counter melody, which first appeared in Eleanor Rigby and was expanded on songs like Getting Better and She's Leaving Home. In fact, Paul is so enamoured of this idea that he'll attempt something similar in the middle section of Don't Let Me Down. George is also encouraged to play a lead part that will effectively work as a counter melody in this song and eventually in Don't Let Me Down which is ironic considering he was asked to do the opposite on Hey Jude in the summer and still holds a grudge about it. With Paul now steering the band painstakingly through the song, the group dynamic changes. John defers to Paul and Paul dictates to everyone what parts to play. This is partly because as bass player he can't lead with his instrument, but also it's just his nature. There is a change of energy in the band, Paul moves things on quickly, but frequently stalls the band to nitpick over details. This means that after many run-throughs, the song hasn't progressed past the middle section and into John's part. Although tensions aren't evident, you can sense that there is almost immediately a difference in the mood in the band. The Beatles are to all intents and purposes John's band. He leads the band by playing his part and trusting his bandmates to follow him. And follow him they do. John's charisma inspires their loyalty and will continue to do so after the Beatles breakup. John is the captain leading his men into battle. Paul, on the other hand, is the upstart lieutenant, agonising over detail and unable to see the big picture, not steering the troops on a clear strategy. The best example of this is captured in the last episode. Paul is going over and over a tiny two-bar guitar phrase for a disproportionate amount of time only to find later that they've not yet come up with a successful way to come out of John's section of the song. At times out of his depth, as the band's de facto manager, he will overcompensate. Derek Taylor, Apple's press officer, noted that he never hated anyone as much as he did Paul McCartney in 1968. The pre-credits clip of Paul belittling their publisher Dick James is an example of Paul's inexperience as a leader of people at this time. We rejoin them as George Martin has approached Paul to talk about the equipment. Another run through of I've Got a Feeling. Counterpoint isn't there yet. finished song. Can you hear this? Can you hear this? Yeah? Paul testing the mic, talking to George Martin. Can you play can you play back on that little tape? On it. And you've been taken to so can I listen to something? He wants to hear a playback. 
talking about an alternative studio. Paul wants to use the dubbing theatre to have a similar atmosphere to the cavern in Liverpool. George Martin is talking about when they used the trap room at Abbey Road Studios for the song Year Blues. Michael is saying the studio they're in is fine for a rehearsal but uh, they want somewhere different for the actual performance. Because as long as we're all just going to play this like that, but each of them, you know, as long as we all want to get, which we all do, we all want to get into a pitch where we're all happy with it. People that sound happy. I like the idea. I like the idea of you working with a big PA, though, because I think yeah. it would trigger off something with you. It'd be like doing a live performance. George Martin suggesting that working with a, a big, loud PA system would inspire the group to give a good performance even during rehearsals. A suggestion from Michael about playing outside is rejected by Paul because it's too cold. Have you had very loud sounds in here, Dennis? Can you remember? Sorry, George, why have you had very loud sounds in here recorded? George talking to Dennis O'Dell about the acoustic properties of the studio. Sutton. He's in charge of the film Sound. He'd go on to work on The Empire Strikes Back and Labyrinth amongst other films. You would sound yeah. quite good as opposed to shabby. I tell you what, there's a, there's a small stage, you know, which is soundproof. We can have a look at Yeah. I just don't know whether I'm building on it or not today, because I know I'm erecting on one. But I can have a look and see. Your place to yeah, but I've just I've got it under contract till the end of May from, from uh, last week. Head of Apple Film, Dennis O'Dell had been involved with the Beatles on Celluloid since their first movie, A Hard Day's Night, for which he was an associate producer. Moving on to produce John Lennon in How I Won the War and the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour project, a vunk killer with his frizzy hair and square spectacles, he became a trusted member of the Beatles' inner circle, notably travelling to New York with John and Paul for the launch of Apple Corps 
and flying to Rishikesh, India with a group to discuss a project getting them to act in a film version of The Lord of the Rings. Thankfully, nothing became of that project. Most Beatles fans know his name from the song You Know My Name, Look Up The Number, twisted by Lennon's wordplay into the crooner Dennis O'Bell. Dennis has suggested Ringo to be cast alongside Peter Sellers in the forthcoming production The Magic Christian and has hired the sound stages at Twickenham for that purpose. By moving the production schedules around, Dennis was able to give the Beatles this period, perhaps three weeks as John keeps suggesting, to rehearse and record their TV performance. Michael Lindsay Hogg pushing for a more cinematic venue. No, we'll be all right. It's just. Uh... You see, this is we'll play it. You know, we'll just play it. It'll, you know, we'll we'll move out of here. When you're ready, that's right. Or maybe we won't. You know, maybe we'll get closer here. Yeah. 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 But we'll we'll just we'll go, let's have a look at the small stage. We'll just wander over, which is a tiny yeah, stage, which is nice. Now. Dennis suggests that he and George Martin check out a smaller building. Yeah, we'll do it for a little while later on. I always just say do a couple of days and see what happens. And get a bit of film and... See, I mean, we're going to have to sort of go around, yeah, and, around for and, the real and look side around anyway. And it's it's nearly always when you've had a great lunch and you're just feeling good and someone just walks past it. It's just trying to do it, do you? And it really works better like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's a great room over in the pub, too. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis jokes about the nearby pub. This will be the St Margaret's Tavern. It's on the opposite side of the road from the Barrens where the studio is situated. It's probably the scene of many a liquid lunch for the crew and the executives. George asks if John has heard the Jackie Lomax album that he's produced. He gets quite a discouraging response from John. George now singing Speak To Me. That's written by Jackie Lomax and it's the opening track on his album Is This What You Want? John tunelessly riffs along. The tape cuts to another clip of I've Got a Feeling. Paul takes him through another run through. Paul saving his voice on this one. George beginning to work out a lead part now through John's part of the song. There's no mics yet for the vocals. This is the first appearance of the counterpoint, but it's just a continuation of the verse. There's no ascending and descending chords to link the sections yet. Paul suggests an abrupt ending. So for now we'll have the 
John suggests a bluesy descending riff, which is an embryonic version of what they'll eventually decide on later. brilliant punchline here gets missed by John. Everybody had a hard-on, except for me and my monkey. I hopefully don't need to explain that one. But it's another hint that these sessions are not all doom and gloom. George and Paul sing a version of the Mighty Quinn, inspired by I've Got a Feeling. Quinn the Eskimo, or the Mighty Quinn, is a Bob Dylan song recorded in 1967 on Dylan's basement tapes, and it's a hit for Manfred Mann in 1968. The verses may have inspired John's section of this song, and George has spotted it. Another run through. George points out that the All I Was Looking For section in the middle of this song reminds him of Otis Redding's Hard to Handle. It seems like George is the band's copyright guardian. John and Paul acknowledge this but downplay it. They pick up where they left off. Paul and John working out the structure of their counterpoint section. Then we'll just put the foot down, put then the foot down for about four or eight, and then back into I've got a feeling and foot down. I see. I'll just yeah. read the first verse then. Yeah. Two of them. Together. Yeah. So, so in fact I do the whole lot twice then. Yeah. Okay. Or else we run. Well it'll change. You know, there's millions of John suggests additional lyrics for his part. George getting closer to an idea for the part he'll play at the end of every verse. John inspired by this to play a repetitive riff, not unlike the bass part for Come Together. Yeah. 
Glyn Johns talking to Paul and Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yeah, you couldn't, yeah. So George says he's going to take no, care no. of it. Mm. But well, I mean, for your, for exam, your... I, it, I wouldn't, I don't know, I don't know anything, anything technical no, at no, all, no. nothing. Glyn is saying that George Martin is sorting out the PA equipment. Glyn Johns was a 26-year-old sound engineer working freelance at the time. He'd built up a reputation for capturing great sound, working his way up from tape operator at IBC Studios in Portland Place, London. He'd been the sound recorders on some of rock music's finest moments. You Really Got Me by The Kinks, My Generation by The Who. He's the only engineer producer to work with The Beatles, The Rolling Stones and The Who. He came to this project just after recording the first Led Zeppelin album. Glyn had been part of the crew for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus TV special alongside Michael Lindsay Hogg as director and John and Yoko as performers. Although in his autobiography Soundman, he's less than flattering about the latter's vocal talents on the day. In that book, Glyn describes the circumstances of his being invited to work on the new Beatles project. In December 1968, while sitting at home on a night off, I answered the telephone to a man with a Liverpudlian accent claiming to be Paul McCartney. I thought it was Mick Jagger trying to be amusing, so I told him to stop messing about and asked him what he wanted. The man persisted, and much to my shock and embarrassment, it really was Paul McCartney. He told me that he had an idea for the band to write all new material and then record it in front of a live audience for a TV show and for release as an album. The venue was to be discussed, but it would be somewhere exotic. He then asked if I would be interested in making the record with them. I felt like I'd won the lottery. He told me that they were all to meet at the soundstage at Twickenham Film Studios on January 2nd, 1969, when they were to start rehearsals, and asked if I could be there. Mal Evans, the band's trusty road manager, was there to greet me with a huge smile as I arrived. He and his young assistant Kevin made me feel most welcome. The soundstage was huge, far bigger than was necessary for what we had to do. It's been suggested in another publication that the reason I got the job was that I had a union card to enable me to work on the movie. Like so much of the info that's been written regarding my involvement with the band, this is complete nonsense, as I have never belonged to any other union than the musicians. As Glyn points out, his job wasn't to record the sound for the film. They had a film crew for that. His job was to record the Beatles' performance for a live recording and look after their front of house sound. It was as a respected engineer with connections to all the biggest artists of the era that Glyn Johns had come to Paul's attention. Maybe he was John's recommendation, or maybe Glyn's close friend, Nicky Hopkins, who'd played on the Revolution single, had recommended him, or maybe even Mick Jagger, who had a close relationship with John and George, had suggested him. They had of course worked with Glyn before, though perhaps unknowingly, as he'd recorded their backing tracks for their TV special around the Beatles, which they'd refer to later. Whatever the reason, Glyn Johns became an essential element in the Get Back project, filling the void left by a largely uninvolved George Martin and acting as an uncredited producer. Where did we get the stuff from the uh, circus for? IBC. IBC. Michael Lindsay Hogg asks where Glyn got his equipment for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus TV show. Glyn says IBC, a studio he has a long association with. Because you get a good sound, though. Yeah, yeah. See, because the great. thing I don't want, you know, is like a TV show sound. 
They always seem to have that sort of farty little sound <laughs> on TV shows. Well, don't forget, you're, you're hearing it on a TV speaker, which is a grotty speaker. Grotty is a word coined in a hard day's night and has fallen into common usage. But so you when, can on, get a good sound. No, whenever, whenever you used to get uh, Cool for Cats, <laughs> 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 when they played the record, or anything, you know, any yeah, of the old mime shows. You know, yeah, yeah. In the old oh, days. yeah, it can come uh, out. What? Because what? it just sometimes sounds too thin. Cool for Cats was a groundbreaking British TV show of the 50s, featuring music for a teenage audience. Paul is using it as an example of bad TV sound. What, what we'll do is perhaps if you think to come down to Olympic one evening when we finished here or something, and I'll play you some of the stuff that we did on the show and show you what we did, and then you can criticise it and say how you want it different if you like. Mm. Maybe, maybe. Glyn tries to get Paul to listen to the recordings for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Paul doesn't seem keen. He's, if anything, more determined to stay where they are. I think it's just as well just to stay here. No, just yeah. to stay here and yeah. do it, you know, see yeah. what happens. But I think you'll find... I was really pleased with the sound on, on the Stones thing. It was really good. Yeah, the mixes I had are very nice and chunky and Very solid. full sound. It's really... It sounds like a, a good live studio recording. You know, great. it sounds like a group all playing at once. Mm. It's great. You really never know, see, this, this place sounds terrible now. It may just be great. Never going to get it. We, we're this, the PA stuff's arriving this afternoon, isn't it? Great. Yeah, you can never tell with these places that are yeah. supposed to be terrible acoustically. I think the thing... Yeah, we did a track in a, in a little room like a bog, you know. Yeah. And we're having no separation in there, you know. We really got good separation. We did uh, your blues in there. Yeah. yeah and it's all right, the sound. It's very sort of different kind of sound. Yeah. Paul refers to the uh, blues session, just as George Martin had done earlier. I think the thing to do is just be very flexible still about every aspect of the enterprise. I think, well, I think, you know, <laughs> Michael, I think you're pretty right. Pretty You're pretty comment. right, Michael. Uh. Michael steers Paul again towards playing somewhere more cinematic. Are you going to keep the beard? I don't know. You, you look like a Talmudic student. Yeah. And you want to get one of those... Big brimmed hats with those ringlets down the ears. Yes, and, yes, I and saw them on television. That'd be good. And then we could do it in Israel. No, the thing is, the thing is that an open air sound mm. is fantastic. I've always wanted to do something yeah. in the open air. I, I, okay, that's what we were saying. But and so where's Hot? No, it was twelve. Take one. Like, yeah. If the idea is that, yeah. that Michael and, and, and this is thirteen take one had with all their weird instruments, and snake charmers and yeah. and like holy men and mm. all that scene, and they just like hundreds of people and they just gather around and they all play and you give them bread. And I fantastic. was very taken by the place Dennis talked about. Yeah, this that was theater mm. because the whole thing I could see it with the sea outside, torch lit, two thousand Arabs and friends around. <laughs> Michael will keep pursuing this idea. I thought the venue was a No, I, th I think we won't. Be, I think you'll find we're not going abroad. Because mm. mm. uh, Ringo just said he doesn't want to go abroad. And he, and he put his foot down. Ringo will be captured later on tape being quite grumpy with Dennis O'Dell. So they may have just caught him on a bad day. So? Yeah. Us and Jimmy Nichols might go abroad. <laughs> Paul's joke refers to the stand-in drummer the Beatles used for their Dutch and Australian tours in 1964, while Ringo was taken ill with tonsillitis. 
It's the second self-referential joke that the band have made today. The first being a Hard Day's Night line delivered by John when he greets Paul earlier. The Beatles seem to be feeling nostalgic and are all too aware of their own history. Perhaps Hunter Davis's biography of the band, published in late 1968, has refreshed their memories of the Beatlemania years. Or perhaps those peak years are a point of reference for them now as they're considering a return to live performance. As for Jimmy Nickel himself, well by this time he disappeared back into obscurity and had apparently lost his not insubstantial Beatle earnings to bad investments. There is plenty of material available to learn his story and I'd recommend the Nothing Is Real podcast as a great way to digest his enigmatic tale. He may or may not still be alive. I'll leave it to you to decide. It gets me out of a lot of trouble too. Well, you didn't want to go, bro. I'm getting married on the 11th. January. Oh, well, no, you, you can't go. And she might, have got, she might have got a bit uptight. Marrakesh honeymoon. Yeah, for two. For 40. We'd work that out. Most of the research that I've done has indicated that this is Glyn John's talking here about getting married which does make sense Um, his wife Sylvia was pregnant with their son Ethan around this time however you can still hear Glyn laughing so that's not Glyn's voice and I haven't yet been able to identify it I'm hoping this will become more apparent as we go on I want to take someone I think the thing to do is just see what we all feel in a day or two as opposed to making Ooh. anything, that was the second beer, wasn't it? Second as opposed beer. to making anything hard and fast, uh, immediately, because we may find the idea or any idea grows and gets more attractive or less attractive, given where you are now. In other words, we may find in two days here. <laughs> I, if he's not going to give up. He really won't give up. It's all right. He won't give up. I am. You'll be saying this at, like as you walk on stage, you know, like the, yeah. on the night of the show. Well, I really think. Uh, <laughs> Mm. I might, I personally, if anybody, asked, if anybody asked me point blank where I thought you should, I would say Torchlet in the, on the top of Africa as myself. But no one's asked me that question. See, look, the thing is Ringo definitely doesn't want to go abroad, mm. so that means we don't go abroad. You know? mm, mm. Maybe we go abroad next time. Mm. But this time, no. Mm. Uh, but it's just as well that, but it'd be nice to try and find some way to do it out of doors. Paul, even on this first day, is entertaining the idea of playing somewhere outside. It's so bloody cold, isn't it? That's and the only other problem, see, if we could probably get over the Can't cold... You, you know, like in a car, when you can heat sort of ground level and you can put the hood back, and, the, the, you know, the cold sort of streams over the top as long as you've got the heaters up full. You know what I mean? You can yes. get a sort of open... My mind. It's not the heat so much, it's the weather. Surrounded all I mean, it's the oh, actual yeah. weather, it's yeah. snowing yeah, and raining. Snow. It's, your, your, it's your English rain, which is worrying about out of doors in this country. Yes. See, out of... Oh, no, no the, to me, it's the heat. I wouldn't mind either playing in the rain, that's... That would be interesting, yeah, right. Snow or rain, do me. You know, wind and anything. I can make all that. It's just a frozen hand trying to <laughs> yes, you could play those notes. Trying to get your E7th when the your little snow fingers and rain. It's all right. And you might just have a few deaths on the set due to electric shocks. Yeah, that's what I was... I mean, I wasn't worried. I mean, I just, I just thought if it's raining, it's just not all that fun if you're going to do it for two or three days. I mean, if, if we did at the end of the month in slough out in the fields. And anyway, the audience would have... Eight pigs and seven farmers. <laughs> it's uh, I think things just to be flexible. He said finally. Michael still hoping to persuade the band somehow. 
I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to do an album, a complete album. You're doing album. one with Steve Miller, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm... Glim will go on to produce Steve Miller after these sessions. And as the conversation on this tape ends, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. <laughs>